years ago, someone asked me, what do you want to have happen when you preach? And I, I could have said, well, I want people to come to faith in Jesus, which is certainly true. Or I want people to learn and love the Bible, which is also true. Um, but a million preachers could have said those same things. And this inquirer wanted to know what was unique about my preaching, what, what, it, what, what was the distinguishing passion behind my preaching. So I really only had to think of it for a moment. I had never thought of it in these terms before, but in a moment I knew the answer. I want people to say, wow, about God. Not about the sermon. I can forget about the sermon, but I want them to see and say, wow, God is incredible. If there's ever a passage for a preacher with that passion, it's the one we're going to look at today. Romans eleven thirty three through 36. And yet, as I prepare to share a message from this passage, I, I have to acknowledge that my gifts are inadequate, insufficient to both the need and the opportunity. I can't do this justice. This passage moves from prose to poetry. It moves from theology to worship and from the history of the earth to the mystery of heaven. And yet I've had brief glimpses into that mystery. There have been times, and they've almost always been while I've been at prayer. There have been times when I've caught sight of the shining, fathomless sea of God's riches and the limitless reach of his hand. I've seen as if from the corner of my mind's eye, the inexhaustible resources of God's, the infinite scope of his knowledge and and, and most overwhelming to me, the fathomless depths of his joy. One well-known scholar says of these verses that here we see the historical sweep of the divine purpose, the interlocking of justice and mercy, kindness and severity, that bear patiently with terrible human wickedness and grieve over terrible human loss and tragedy, that yearn for humans to come back to the one in whose image they were made, and find true life. Yes, we see that here and more. When we come to this passage, we stand on a high mountain overlooking the boundless sea of divine glory. What lies under the surface of that sea, teeming with life and power and joy, is beyond our comprehension. This passage, this poem, is about what God has, his inexhaustible riches, and what God is, the fountain of wisdom and knowledge. Is that how you think about God when you think of him? Does he expand your mind? Does the very thought of him humble you and move you to awe? Or do you have a tame God? One who does your bidding, but never manages to impress you. Some years ago, British researchers went door to door asking people about their belief in God. One of the questions they asked was, do you believe in a God who intervenes in human history, who changes the course of affairs, who performs miracles, etc.? The authors took the title for their study, which they later published, from a man whose answer they thought best represented the majority view of respondents. He answered, 
No, I don't believe in that God. I believe in the ordinary God. The ordinary God. I hope you don't believe in the ordinary God. He will never cause hope to well up within you. He will never fill you with confidence and joy or make your hair stand on end and your legs give way from awe and wonder. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is no ordinary God. Let's read our passage. It's Romans eleven thirty three through 36. <clears throat> Paul starts off with a little Greek word, one letter, O. And, and you know he's moved. He's moved on to something else. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things To him be the glory forever. Amen. This passage is a song of praise. It seems to erupt unexpectedly from the apostle. He's been writing about the surprising way that God rescued humanity. His sovereign choice, his patient love, his brilliant use of human uh, obstinance and disobedience to serve his purpose. And suddenly it's as if he can't contain himself any longer. The careful theologian just morphs into this passionate poet. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this poem praises God for what he has, his unimaginable riches, and for what he is, the fountainhead of wisdom and knowledge. The NIV translates this as if the riches of God consist in his wisdom and knowledge. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. That's a possible translation, but it's not the most likely, and it's not the most straightforward reading of the original language or the one that most contemporary scholars prefer. What probably is meant here is, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. It sees riches, wisdom, and knowledge as three distinct things. In the Bible, God's not only rich in wisdom and knowledge, he's also rich in glory and grace, which never run out. He's rich in kindness and patience. Think of what your life would be like if God was not rich in patience, if his patience was in short supply. He's rich in love and mercy, and he's also rich in material goods. See, he invented matter. And he retains the right to all of it. Though he loans some of it to us while we're here, there is nothing that you have, including your own body, that he didn't make and that isn't his by right. God has never found himself in need once. He's never been overdrawn on an account. He doesn't need to protect his assets. He has endless resources, and the extent of his riches is unfathomable. When I was a boy, my parents took me to a place called the Blue Hole. It was a it's kind of a natural curiosity, and many people came to see it. Uh, I think if I saw it today, I wouldn't be very impressed, because it's not really much more than a hole in the ground filled with water. But it was said that no one had ever been able to find its bottom. It, it's as if it went down forever and ever. And that impressed me 
I mean, scared me even a little as I stood on the edge and imagined myself falling in and never touching the bottom. Paul's picture of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge is like that. No one can plumb their depths. Standing on the edge of his infinity and eternity, I feel something like I felt standing on the edge of the blue hole and looking over it. God, I realize, is not like us. He is awe-inspiringly different. We're limited on every side. He's limitless. He's other, not just in degree, but in nature. Some people think that I have a big footprint, and with my size 17 shoes, you know, that's understandable. But I take up very little space in creation. God is different. He's not in creation in the same way we are. Creation is in him. The psalmist said that God doesn't need anything from us. And he adds that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, which to a shepherd in ancient Israel was very, or to a a, a farmer in ancient Israel, was mighty impressive. But it doesn't communicate much to us today. If the psalmist were writing today, he might say that He might list the world's richest people, Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerman and all the other one percenters in the world, and then say that all their wealth combined doesn't equal the change that falls between the cushions of God's sofa. There is no limit to his riches, nor is there a limit to his wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge has to do with comprehending what is. Wisdom has to do with using what is. To achieve what is desired. And let me illustrate. Knowledge is awareness or comprehension of something. Let's say of electrons. Electricity. No one has ever seen an electron. You realize that, right? We don't have the tech to see electrons. No one has ever, ever seen an electron. But people have gained knowledge of them. For example, scientists know that the mass of an electron is 9.109389 times 10 to the negative 31st power kilograms. They know that. And they know the charge that electrons carry and how they spin. That's knowledge. Wisdom takes that knowledge to accomplish a purpose. So wise people have taken their knowledge of electrons' charge and spin and mass and the process of ionization, and they've used it to bring electricity into our homes, to light our trees, to give our cars headlights and radios, to make our televisions work, our stoves heat, our refrigerators cool, our traffic lights to change. Now, you can imagine a scientist who knows the mass of an electron but lacks the wisdom to stay away from down power lines. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. God has both, and both are unfathomable. They are limitless. Cosmologists tell us that the universe is primarily made up of things we don't see. They say that visible matter, like planets and stars and nebula and gas clouds, they only make up about 4% of the mass of the universe. The other 96% is invisible to us. Now, the scientists hypothesize about dark matter and dark energy. God doesn't hypothesize. He knows. Dark matter is not dark to him. He knows all about it. He knows all about everything. He knows what happened on this spot on this day in 683 B.C. And he knows what will happen tomorrow here and in 500 years. He knows why the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter, pi, 
It's always 3.14159265, add on, 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 on. He knows why phi, which is the golden ratio, is 1.618039888 and so forth. And why that ratio shows up in nature over and over again in the pattern of sunflower seeds and pine cones and DNA molecules and mollusk shells and spiral galaxies and the shapes of hurricanes and much more. God knows this. He knows if it will rain tomorrow, if it will rain on June 30th, and if it will rain on June 30th 50 years from now. He knows how many times a butterfly's wings will flap in some jungle in South Africa and how that will change the weather in England two weeks from now. He also knows you. He knows the events that shaped you when you were two. He knows every thought and feeling that you have ever had or will ever have, including the thoughts and feelings you are having at this instant. And he knows why you're having them. And he knows this about all 7.4 billion people on earth today and about the 100 billion or so who have ever lived on earth. He doesn't have to think about these things. He doesn't have to research. He doesn't have to reason it out. He's not like us. He just knows everything all at once. And he knows what to do with that knowledge. That's what Paul's been talking about in chapters 9 through 11. And it what moves him to burst into song now. The wisdom of this God is infinite. Let me give you a couple of examples of how he uses his knowledge of his wisdom in creation. Scientists believe in something called the cosmological constant. And, and that's a long, big, complex thing, but to, to summarize it, it's the vacuum energy density of the universe. It is a very small number, a very, 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 very small number. In fact, for 70 years or so, almost all physicists believed it to be exactly zero. Einstein thought it was not, and then later said it was the biggest blunder of my life, and it turns out that it wasn't a blunder at all, that he was right. Physicists have changed their mind about it just in the last few years because of a, a recent discovery. They now know that the number can't be zero, but it's really close. So one famous physicist has calculated that number to be zero within one part in 10 to the 120th power. If that number were any bigger or smaller, the universe would either have flown apart or collapsed on itself a long time ago. Now let me give you an idea of just how large that number is, 10 to the 120th power. It's a one with 120 zeros behind it. Okay, just picture that. A trillion is one with 12 zeros behind it. A variation within 10 to the 120th power can't even be conceived. The wisdom it took to make a universe like ours, it's not balanced on the head of a pen or the edge of a knife, but on something incomprehensibly thinner. The wisdom it takes is mind-boggling. The great theoretical physicist Leonard Susskind, the father of string theory, out at Stanford, beautiful mind, brilliant person, says that it most certainly is no accident. No, it isn't an accident. It is wisdom unimaginable. Let me give you another example. The cosmologist and mathematician Roger Penrose oh, uh, once wrote a book with Stephen Hawking. He calculated the probability, or what the probability is, that the initial state of the universe would be exactly right to allow it to still exist today. He placed the likelihood at a one chance in 10 to the 10th 
to the 123rd power. Now, if you, that dwarfs the number we were just talking about by a, an unimaginable magnitude. If you had a piece of paper that stretched across the universe, tens of billions of light years long, and remember, a single light year is six billion, six billion miles, and you possessed unlimited ink and an eternity to work, you would not have enough room to write that number. But God has the knowledge and the wisdom to make that work. So with Paul, we say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. But Paul, see, he knew that God's riches and wisdom and knowledge, they don't just have to do with cosmology, they have to do with us. They have consequences in everyday life. How unsearchable his judgments, he says, where the word judgments means something like decisions. How unsearchable his decisions. We ask God, why? But Paul says his judgments, the decisions he makes, are unsearchable. We can't figure it out. When my mother was dying, Karen and I went home to take care of her. And she seemed to be suffering, and it just dragged on and on. And I didn't want my mother to die, but I didn't want her to go through this. So one night I prayed that God would spare her the suffering and take her. During the middle of that same night, she cried out. We were sleeping on the the sofa. We had pulled it out, sofa bed. And she was in the hospital bed next to us. In the middle of the night, she cried, I'm going, I'm going. Well, we jumped up, you know. Ah, she didn't go. (laughs) Two days later, she was still with us and still suffering. And I thought about this after she died. And I realized that trusting God means not just trusting his good intention, but his timing and his wisdom. I wondered why God was taking so long. But am I God? Do I know how he works all things together for good? Had she died three days earlier, do I know what work in her soul would have gone undone? Or what work in my soul? Had she died three days earlier, Someone, and maybe even one of you, dear friends who drove all the way to my hometown, would have been killed on the way to the funeral in an accident. Or perhaps someone attending the funeral three days earlier would have been in the wrong place to meet a future spouse or to talk to a future employer or put an arm around a child who would otherwise have gone off the rails five years later. I don't know those things, and I can't figure them out. But God does. He knows all this and more. Then the next line of this poem, obviously meant to be parallel to this one, and his paths beyond tracing out. If there's any difference in these lines, it lies between what Paul means by judgments and what he means by ways. Searching out God's judgments has to do with discovering why. Why God has done what he's done, or allowed what he's allowed. Whereas tracing out his ways has to do with how God has done what he's done, how he's got us where we are. The one has to do with cause, the other has to do with method, and Paul knows that we're not smart enough to figure out either one. I mentioned Albert Einstein before. Einstein once said this, we're in the position of a little child entering a huge library filled with books in many languages. The child knows someone must have written those books. It doesn't know why. It doesn't understand the languages in which they're written. The child dimly suspects a mysterious order in the arrangement of books, but doesn't know what it is. That, said Einstein, it seems to me is the attitude of even the most intelligent human being toward God. 
Look now at verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? President Trump has advisors. The Federal Reserve has advisors. The, the Queen of England has advisors. The World Bank has advisors. God does not. And he is not taking applications. Not long after I came to faith in Christ, my grandpa's health deteriorated and it looked like he was going to die. I'd often stayed with my grandparents, and especially when my brother was dying. It just left five doors down from us. There's the barbershop, the corner market, restaurant, another house, and my grandparents. So we were close both in proximity and in affection. After God goofed up and let my brother die, I guess I thought he needed my advice to do the right thing with my grandpa. And so I gave it to him. Imagine if he'd followed my advice. My grandpa would still be alive today, be 128 years old. He would have suffered from dementia for the last 44 years and be longing to die. God didn't need my advice then, and he doesn't need it now. This is verse 35. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? God has never been indebted to anyone. The most we can possibly do is give him back what he gave us, or to be more precise, what he loaned us. We don't have ownership over our possessions, our resources, our earth, or even our bodies. God does. Imagine you loaned me $500 a year ago. Years gone by, and I've only given you $10 back. But now I'm acting like you owe me because I gave you money. Now apply that to God. He's given us everything we have, life and breath and all our possessions. The idea that he could ever be indebted to us? I mean, for what? Going to church? Giving a tenth of our income or trying to be good people? is preposterous. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. When I read that verse, it always conjures up for me the image of a juggler. An expert juggler. The ball he tosses is from him, and though it traverses space, ascending and descending, it moves through his power, and its journey is never other than from him and to him. All creation, including us, is from God. He brought us into existence. And through God, every moment of the day, we're upheld by his power. And to God, he's our destiny. Sometimes we're ascending, but it's not by our strength. Sometimes we're descending, even feel like we're in a free fall. But his sure hand will catch us. And our journey is never other than from him and to him. We're safe. If you have a God like this, not the ordinary God, but the real one, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you have to fear? But this is the God you have, whether you realize it or not. This is the God who made all things, including you, and makes all things work together for his purpose. Now the last phrase of verse 36. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And now we've moved to worship. We must remember who it is we worship when we gather. 
We don't come here to sing songs. We come here to worship God. The songs are just an instrument of doing that. We can't forget who we come to worship. Annie Dillard put it this way in in Teaching a Stone to Talk, a book she wrote back in the 80s. She said, Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we blithely invoke? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. See, those are the words of someone who's caught sight of the God Paul is describing. Have you seen him? The scholar Michael Bird says that if we worship that God, the God described in these verses, we'll no longer ask what this service or that hymn did for me or how it made me feel. He goes on, if you want a buzz, if it's a buzz you want, then lick your finger and insert an electric socket. If it's emotional highs and lows you relish, run a DVD of Downton Abbey. Worshiping this God will do more than give us an emotional high when we're at church. It will change us when we're not at church. See, you can tell whether worship has been good, not by what happens here, but what happens there. Worship of this God will transform the way we look at each other, at the world, at ourselves, at our problems. We must get a glimpse of this God. Pray that as a church, we may be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. Pray for this. Get on your knees and beg for it. One last thing. Never forget that this God, the one who computes 1 to the 10th to the 23rd power, 123rd power, without a calculator. This God, the God of infinite riches and wisdom and glory, is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the God who for us and our salvation came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Talk about unsearchable judgments and paths beyond tracing out. Who would ever have thought it? But this God, the one who became flesh and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, is our God the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Say wow about him. Worship him. Now I'm going to fall down. (laughs) Let's pray. God, we do plead with you to reveal yourself to us, to give us the spirit of wisdom and, and knowledge and revelation in the knowledge of you. That when we come together, we don't just sing songs and hear words. But we worship the true God. 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Reveal yourself to us in him and through your word for the sake of Jesus our Lord. Amen.